0: This episode of AD History is brought to you by NordVPN. Have you ever wondered how Rome would handle a pandemic? Or what kind of relationship ancient Rome and ancient China had? Well, have we got a story for you.
1: This is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting TGNReview.com. Now, here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote.
2: And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, great to see you today. We have some wonderful stuff coming up, some really hard-hitting material. How are you?
0: I am good, thanks, Paul. It's great to see you as well. And you are quite right. This is a huge episode of AD History today. Lots of stuff to cover, some pretty big events. And what we love most here on AD History is when two of our ancient cultures meet. And, Paul, that's what you're going to be covering. I'm first covering something a little closer to home. And this is, of course, uh, 161 AD to 170 AD. But Paul, before we begin, should we have a quick word from our sponsor of today's episode?
2: Yes, of course. And today's episode is sponsored by NordVPN. Yes, and thank you to NordVPN for sponsoring AD History. A new year
0: is upon us and what better way to bring in the new year than finally getting yourself protected online and the best way to protect yourself online is with NordVPN. Nord servers not only give you military grade encryption that make sure no one else is accessing your information, but it also allows you to bypass any restrictions that may be applied to the internet in your part of the world. Their clear and easy to use interface allows you to connect to any of their over 1000 servers in 60 plus countries around the globe. And they allow you to browse the internet as if you were in that country. And should you run into any issues with Nord, their 24-7 custom support will always be able to lend their hand. And let me tell you guys, uh, last time we talked about Nord, I mentioned how even though the US Office is now taken off of American Netflix and it's still on British Amazon Prime, well, we brought in the new year here in the UK by getting the American Office added to UK Netflix. So it's even easier now with Nord to watch The Office. If you can't watch it anymore in America, simply hop on. ...to UK Netflix, and it's there waiting for you. All 200 or so episodes of wonderful American Office there on UK Netflix. A bit of an oxymoron, I know, but it's there for you guys to enjoy. You're welcome. But, Paul, what do you enjoy so much about Nord?
2: Well, you guys have heard me talk about Nord at length at this point, and you know that when I first got it over two years ago, I did a ton of research before going into it. I always look to see what's the best bang for my buck and if something is going to work for me. And in that time, NordVPN has a flawless, absolutely spotless record with me because I, like many people nowadays, are working online. I work with a ton of content management systems, YouTube, things of that nature, where the protection of my data is paramount, but even more important than that is the protection of my loved ones. And now, since with a single Nord account, you can connect up to six devices, every member of my immediate family has done so. I've insisted upon it, and they absolutely love it. And in addition to the security protects and the peace of mind it gives to me and them as well, they have done so much of it, just like Patrick was talking about, being able to access things specifically various types of media, TV show through streaming services in parts of the world that would not otherwise be available to them based on their geography. But the fact of the matter is that with the six devices on top of having no data logging and opening up the internet to you, NordVPN is an absolute gem. There's just no question about it because I believe very firmly that nobody should dictate the parts of the internet that are available to me based on the geography of my IP address. And that's one of the reasons why I have been such a satisfied customer for NordVPN for almost two years now. NordVPN currently has a fantastic deal for listeners of AD History. That being a huge discount on a two year plan and an extra month for free by visiting Nordvpn.com slash ad history and by using the code AD History. This includes their amazing 30 day money back guarantee. Once again that's NordVPN.com slash ad history and promo code AD History, which will be linked down below on YouTube and on the podcast directories. And remember guys, This includes their 30-day money-back guarantee. This is an incredible deal. As I've said before, it is a no-brainer. So thank you once again to NordVPN for sponsoring this episode of the AD History Podcast. All right, now before we get into the true thick of things, let's lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foote you
0: have the floor. Thank you, Paul. And as I mentioned, uh, one of the parts of today's episode is going to be hitting a little bit closer to home, especially if you're listening when this podcast, I would say, first goes live. And it's going live in January 2021. And if you're listening in now, I'm sure you know what's happening right now. And if you're listening in the future, I'm sure you're a big enough fan of history to know what was happening at this time period. And uh, whenever you maybe listen to this, The facts of the matter are, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, and pandemics are no new thing. And one of the Roman Empire's greatest challenges wasn't against another empire or some sort of inside revolt, but rather a pandemic that started in this decade. This is, of course, the Antonine Plague.
2: And something I think we want to say here and preface this before we begin. We understand why you listen to A.D. history. You're looking to get an escape, a little something to take you away from your day. And of course, we know that our current pandemic, COVID-19, has touched all of us in one way or another. So if this is something that you are not that keen on listening to because it has touched you in a very, very particular and personal way, we ask that either A, you skip to the next segment, or B, just recognize that this segment may not be for you because we are not going to be holding back in our discussion here. No, that is
0: quite right, Paul, and thank you very much for uh, mentioning that at the top here. It does As we said, we do want AD History to be an escape from what's going on right now, but sometimes it's hard to escape that, and as they say, history has a habit of repeating itself. So this was the Antonine Plague, or at least it's only kind of known by the Antonine Plague. Uh, It goes by two names, known as the Antonine Plague and the Plague of Galen. This first name relates to the emperor at the time, Marcus Aurelius Antonius, and the latter name comes from the physician Galene, who first described it. Uh, Either name is acceptable to use, but I'll most likely be sticking with the name Antonine Plague, as that's by and large what it's more known by. And to understand why this plague hit Rome so hard, at first we have to talk about Rome's hygiene, which abysmal is a word that comes to mind, at least by our standards anyway. So it's no surprise to hear that Rome wasn't the most hygienic place, especially by today's standards. And while ancient Rome had a remarkably complex sewer system and sanitation, for its time, a basic knowledge of germs and hygiene. Even clean water wasn't available, refrigeration wasn't available, and this meant diseases could spread easily like malaria was rampant throughout the uh, entire empire and so were many intestinal diseases and fevers were always present people just waste away and like we said at the beginning this isn't for the light-hearted there were even reports of wounds infested with worms which just isn't nice at all in the fourth century the roman emperor julian took pride in saying that he had only ever vomited once in his life Basically, Rome was gross. And Paul, I believe you have a point of contention in regards to me claiming that Rome was gross.
2: Well, it's not a point of contention. I think <laughs> it's a point of direct irony, because I believe this adage is most often attributed to the Romans, which is cleanliness right next to godliness. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, the, the, the first thing that I would question is, OK, yes, from a modern perspective, we know Rome was gross. From a modern perspective, most Cities are pretty gross, (laughs) all (laughs) told. You know, we're just living really close to each other. But would the Romans have recognized it as such? I really don't
0: think so. They were probably the Barthas set. I reckon they were pretty gross, but I can't imagine anywhere else was doing much better at the time. And as we'll see through history, things do get worse as we go into the Dark Ages and Middle Ages. Like, somehow things probably get grosser than they were in Rome. This probably is literally all they would have known. They would have just seen this is the normal way. And like I said, the the, te- the technology wasn't there to for them to be less gross. They didn't have refrigeration. Clean water wasn't much of a thing. That's why beer was so enjoyed in the past, because it was easier and safe beer was safer to drink than water for a lot of people. So Undoubtedly. I mean Undoubtedly,
2: yeah. And but the other thing that's interesting, and obviously this goes into the cleanliness of water factor, but The Romans were extremely well-known, even to today, for their fondness of baths. I mean, speaking of fondness of baths, have you even been to bath in your own country?
0: You know what? I haven't been to Bath itself, but I've been to other Roman baths. They're they're dotted all around the country.
2: Ooh, I I have something for you. Mm. You're going to like this, Patrick. Mm -hmm. You're going to (laughs) love it. So, let me bring this up to you right here. Can you read that? Uh, It says bath waters. It is not just bath waters. It is the bath water from the ancient Roman bath in Bath, England. Wow! How yeah. did you end up with that? Isn't that some shit? Isn't it? <laughs> I thought I, I didn't even realize it, and I just looked over onto my onto my bookcase, and I said, what? "Ah, here we go. It has something other than aesthetic purpose now." <laughs> yeah, All right, I just to throw context. it in there. I'll, that's really cool. I'll, I'll show myself out. <laughs> that's
0: really cool stuff. Like yeah. I. Can- what I'll do next, if I ever end up in a uh, bath pool, I'll remember to take some bottles with me and sell them some gullible t- American tourists.
2: Well, <laughs> uh, hey, I, I, let me ask you a question. You've met my brother and his wife. Would you describe either of them as quite so gullible? Uh, no, not so no, much. I no, 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 I didn't think so. <laughs> nope, it was just a little something to bring along. But hey, you know what? If you put a fancy label on it, you could have just filled it from your own taps. Exactly. And...
0: Anyway, as we were saying before we went on over a bathwater tangent, you're right. They did bath. They loved their baths, but that doesn't particularly mean they were clean water they were sitting in. Absolutely. And I want to sort of, so that's sort of the background. Like this was a prime target for a pandemic, these sort of sanitation methods and their hygiene levels. It was prime for the picking. And the Antonine Plague first broke out in 165 AD. And there's a popular story as to how it began. And some of it, as you mentioned, Paul in uh, the notes delves into mythology. Uh, the popular story is that co-emperor at the time, uh, Lucius Verus, came back to Rome after defeating a rebellion in modern-day Iran. And when he returned with spores of war, he brought the virus back with him too. And as you mentioned, in a uh, mythology, there's a theory that a Roman soldier opened up a treasure chest in Parthia, and from that chest, the plague came out of it. So the Romans picked up this disease in Western Asia. However, it's believed that that, uh, the disease that sparked the Antonine Plague actually came from further east in many years prior to it. We have records of there being plagues uh, years beforehand in ancient China. So it's theorised that that plague and the plague that eventually hit Rome were one and the same. And as uh, Lucius Verus marched back towards Rome, he spread it through Asia Minor, Greece, and of course Italy itself. And the people of Rome were never exposed to diseases like this. And they had no immunity. And this meant for once in a battle, they were on the back foot. They were the sitting ducks.
2: Something interesting, though, is if you look up some of the history as well, in terms of the Black Death that we know in Europe, that was actually supposed to have been brought to Europe through the Golden Horde. Mm. So it's interesting how these things tend to migrate. Two different places yeah. and i mean we're not epidemiologists right no but at this point these are things that are pretty well established and we've come a long way scientifically in terms of our medical knowledge but some things don't change
0: no and speaking of our medical knowledge our modern medical knowledge has helped us kind of understand what the Antonine plague may have been and the most popular contenders for what this was are either measles although what's more popular is smallpox it's believed that the Antonine plague was Horrible, horrible smallpox. And symptoms included likes of fever, skin sores and black poxes, uh, sore throats and diarrhoea. And this is perhaps the most gruesome thing I will uh, say in this. And while some of the worst affected were known to cough up and pass scabs from inside their body, which is just like their body had scabbed up and then they were coughing them up or passing them out from the other side. And that's just... That's quite an unpleasant thing. And it's thought to have lasted two to three weeks. And that's if you were able, able to survive. And of course, how did Rome defend themselves from this plague, from this pandemic? And what's interesting is, uh, I guess, quite different to how we've handled things is Rome's first line of defense was to pray to their gods. Um, Some felt that this plague, as mentioned, uh, is thought to come from a treasure chest was a punishment from the gods and of course, Christians were blamed for the outbreak too. This was at a time of uh, persecution of the Christians and they were put in the uh, line of fire this time round. And uh, messages were sent to Apollo asking how to survive. He was seen as the averter of evil. So it was him they went to in regards to this plague. He was the god they wanted to praise Apollo. Uh, statues of him were put up all across the empire in a hope that he would defend them from the plague and of course, eventually the empire, the higher ups, uh, the emperors had to respond to this. And soldiers, because this this battered every part of Rome, and soldiers were replaced with slaves and gladiators, just anyone to fill those battalions. People from outside the empire were invited to repopulate farms and cities. So there were incentives put out saying, we were all this empty land, all these empty cities and farms that need to be tended, come help us out. And even sons or freed slaves were allowed to join councils at local town councils.
2: One of the other first things, of course, they did, Patrick, especially if you were in a place like Rome, is once people were aware of it, one of the first things they also did was just run away. Yeah. And get away as far as possible. And, you know, if you're wealthy enough, if you're wealthy enough, you can have some sort of scenic rural villa from which to largely isolate yourself. But if you are the urban poor in this case, you're really... SOL, to say the least. I mean, goodness. That, and there's also reports of people just abandoning homes altogether Mm. and completely untouched because if people knew that this plague had been in this house or someone associated with this house, they were too afraid to enter the thing. They would just leave it. I mean, they're they're not going to go in there treasure hunting, which I think is really quite remarkable. And I also heard one other thing you'll find interesting. Anytime there's some big problem going on, you're always going to get kind of hoaxes to try to overcome it. And I remember seeing a bit where somebody was selling this kind of like incantation that I think was supposed to emanate from the worship of Apollo, that if you put it above the entrance to your home, it would keep away the disease And obviously that didn't happen. In fact, it's interesting to note that some even say that those who put it above the entrance to their home were some of the first to get sick. That's not just some weird cosmic act of karma. Probably the most logical answer to that is that they thought it was a foolproof way to protect themselves and they did nothing else. So, you know, you have hoaxes, you have people running away, grasping at straws for some way, somehow, because while they kind of understood in a more general respect what was happening, they were a long way from any potential understanding or conception of microbiology. No. And what you just said there, Paul, some of the stuff
0: you just mentioned, and we'll probably talk about this at the end of my segment, but the parallels between this pandemic and our current pandemic, they're quite interesting, like hoaxes people finding odd ways to try and protect themselves, people escaping to the countryside while other people remain in urban scenarios due to money. There's lots of parallels there, which we'll talk about afterwards. But how did this affect Rome? What was the ultimate effect? And it was thought that there were about, at its peak, 2,000 deaths in Rome a day and an estimated 5 million died. It, It had about a death rate of 25%. So... Accord court with the people who got this plague died from it. It killed all sorts, from soldiers, peasantry, and even the autocracy. No one was really safe.
2: No one and ever is.
0: No. And of course, it's thought to have affected the highest up. There are some theories that the co-emperor, Lucius Verus, the man who many put the point on bringing the pandemic to Rome, it's thought he actually died of this plague in 169 AD. We're not sure on that for sure. It's an idea. Offensives had to be called off simply because there wasn't enough soldiers to hold them. And Town councils couldn't meet up just how few of them were. And land from Egypt to Germany just lay abandoned. Huge areas of the empire, as you mentioned, Paul, people just ran away. And it sort of spread fear and mental health issues. I read this one incident. Um, we have a report of someone who we believe was having survivor's guilt he genuinely believed that the only reason he didn't get sick is because he prayed to the gods and it made someone else sick. Instead, of he, he he genuinely believed that a young boy, a young boy he had never met, he didn't know anyone in particular, just a young boy somewhere had died in his stead. And you know, these, you know, especially as we're talking about, compare it to our pandemic, the mental health issues and pandemics are being so talked about today. And we can see it even go back this far of some classic case of survivor's
2: guilt. And, you know, just in terms of the fact you were talking about it a little little earlier and you touched upon it briefly, the Roman professional army was just so incredibly ravaged by this. It, it's truly unbelievable. And you'd stop and you'd think, well, why didn't the whole kit and caboodle just collapse when you don't have anybody to potentially defend the empire? It's not like Rome had any lack of enemies, right? Mm. Especially on their frontiers. But when you stop and think about it, even that being the case isn't the pandemic itself a form of defense? Because how keen would you be to go invading a place that is being stricken by a plague that you have no reason to believe that you are immune to and that making such an incursion may sick the scourge on you as well? So it's kind of an interesting situation when you really stop and begin Meeting it out a little bit, wouldn't you say?
0: Completely, you're, yeah, you're completely right there, Paul. No one in their right mind would want to attack Rome while it's basic while Rome's basically attacking itself. Like I said at the beginning of this, like it, this is one of the greatest threats Rome had, and it wasn't another empire. It was a plague. Like it, it was a different kind of enemy altogether. It's clearly, as we mentioned, so many Roman armies were. Destroyed by this pandemic, and it was just well, it was an enemy many of them couldn't beat, but it did come to an end eventually. and The plague seems to have come to an end in 180 AD, 15 years after it started. Which, like I say, if you're listening to this when it first came out, that probably sounds quite scary to know this pandemic lasted 15 years, but this was about 2000 years ago. And however, it even came back. It's thought to have come back as late as 270 AD, over 100 years since it first emerged. Um, of course, there was no vaccine, so people just eventually built up an immunity. And while it's only believed to have been smallpox, smallpox was only declared eradicated in the 1970s. We've, so it, it's not an issue anymore. Smallpox probably won't be hitting us anytime soon um i've read that there have been some outbreaks in like more recently than the 70s but that was in like lab lab environment so it's it's nothing to worry about right now and of course rome bounced back from this plague some believe it was even stronger than ever but some do also cite this pandemic as the start of rome's fall a lot of people talk about the beginning of the fall of rome marcus aurelius antonius is even considered the last of the five good emperors were officially out of quite literally the good old days these were the good emperors and these were the old days this is quite yeah. literally the end of the good old days for rome
2: yeah it, this is largely it's, and especially with his death is considered the demarcation point that terminates the so-called pax romana
0: yeah and so we are this is quite like i said this is a big episode of AD history and it's quite a turning point and i just want to before we talk about the Antonine Plague and our very own pandemic pool, which I think is a really great thing to have a look in some parallels. As we mentioned, yeah. if you aren't comfortable hearing about this, I'm sure you've already skipped ahead. But if you don't, we are probably going to be talking more about our current pandemic. Please do skip ahead from now. I'm sure there'll be time. Like, I'm sure you best figure out when to uh, start listening in again. And I just wanted to end things with this quote, this fantastic quote I found from a really great article uh, from the Smithsonian Magazine, written by an Edward Watt. And it's just a paragraph about what the Roman plague can teach us about our current pandemic. And it reads, COVID-19 has brought about the first time that much of our world has faced the sudden unseen and unremitting fear of an easily spread and deadly infectious disease. Such a crisis can spur terrified citizens to blame each other for the suffering. It can exasperate existing social and economic divisions. It can even destroy societies. But that need not be so. The Antonine Plague was far deadlier than COVID-19, and the society it hit was far less capable of saving the sick than we are now. But Rome survived, its communities rebuilt, and the survivors even came back to look on the time of the plague with an odd nostalgia for what it showed about the strength of the society and its government. May we be so lucky. And I just think that's a really poignant point. And not to get too much on my soapbox, but we will survive this if Rome, as I said, Rome nowhere near had the technology we do now. And if Rome, could survive a pandemic worse than COVID-19. We can survive this, guys.
2: We can, and we will. And step by step, we are. You know, you're, you're talking about getting into the parallels between what we're experiencing right now and the Ant-9 plague. And I think an interesting place to start from the Roman perspective is to discuss what they didn't do. And yeah. wh- one of the first things that they didn't do was they had no quarantines. Not in the way that we think of it, at least, because, like I said, people were running away. They understood that proximity was, in all likelihood, a factor. You know, they're not going to go into, they're not going to rob an abandoned home that they know at one point was home of the scourge as well. But there was no formal quarantining in the, the way we would understand it today in addition to that there was no work stoppages you know there's no uh, stay at home orders if you will the roman government wouldn't have known to to work in that way in addition to that of course today from just a fundamental standpoint for the most part we also have a ton of inoculations an ability to treat any sort of other Conditions that can be made much worse or really add to the effect of what we're doing today. Like, for example, having a heart condition or something like that. In addition to that, we also have a much, for the most part, generally, a much more nutritious diet. You know, you Mm -hmm. you eat something like breakfast cereal. It includes a bunch of nutrition that really would not be there otherwise unless we manufactured it that way. Just generally better off. In that regard. But Rome, Rome had none of these things. In addition to that, the other thing I think is interesting is when we're talking about the role of the Roman government in all of this, what did they do regarding the economic catastrophe? Because it was an economic catastrophe. Mm. I do believe archaeologists and various other scholars have come and they found ways to measure this in a number of ways. Like, so for example a lot of mines, whether it be gold, silver, or marble quarries, a lot of that stuff ended up just getting abandoned for a while, which is interesting to note. And in the case of the marble quarries, they noticed that for a certain period of time in this decade, I think it was over even several years, they found no marble bricks that they would manufacture and ultimately ship that was printed with a date Within the height of the Antonine Plague pandemic, which is awfully interesting. And it's also, they've also noticed that in terms of records that they have uncovered, that the production of brick fell by almost 50% compared to the pre pandemic manufacturing levels of those bricks. So it has a distinct economic impact as well in addition to the fact when we talk about the Roman government's role in all of this. Today, there are various kinds of stimulus packages, this, this, and that. But for the most part, the role that the Roman government would play is interesting. So in this case, the price of grain actually doubled during this time, (laughs) which is interesting to note. And one of the ways that the Roman government would actually help citizens is they would open up grain storehouses that, that they kept of course as as kind of a supplementary material to help keep those prices down basically an ancient form of the dole if you will yeah as far as grain is concerned and even though you wouldn't see them giving money of one form or another to private businesses one of the ways that they did try to stimulate the economy and this is something you and i would find very familiar today as well as you listening wherever you may be listening is they also funded more public works construction projects, things like canal digging or creating aqueducts. It didn't have the same role, but a lot of the things that they did wouldn't necessarily have been all that unfamiliar to us, even though we are doing a great deal more today. In addition to the fact, guys, there's one really big difference today that was not even imaginable at the time. Which is how so many of us, though not all of us, considering so many people are out of work, but many of us that are fortunate enough have the ability to work from home.
0: Yeah, like it, it's been so fascinating to see the work from home mentality change in just under a year or so. Um, obviously, me and you, Paul, we were basically working in pandemic mode before the pandemic, but.
2: Yeah, it's just our lives is what we yeah. do.
0: To see people realize, oh, I, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to, to, to be in a morning traffic jam. I don't need to be in an office full of other people. I can stay at my home. I don't need to live somewhere expensive so I can work there. I can, I can live somewhere nice and enjoyable. Like I can live out in the sticks and still work, do my office job from home. It's quite. I think it's imagined, I think it's been quite opening for a lot of people. I know some people who live in somewhat sort of central London. And they've all of a sudden realised, I don't need to be here. I don't need to be this far to the city for work because I can work from home. What's the point in paying that much rent if I'm not even using the city? And yeah, obviously, Rome didn't really have work at home. And it's something we are much more fortunate to have as we live now in this HD world, as we call it, where we have the internet and geography isn't as much a factor to us.
2: I could say that the AD History podcast itself is a supreme example of just what you mentioned.
0: Mm. And of course, something else that hasn't been mentioned at all in Rome is face masks. I don't know if there's any sort of concept of a face mask of covering your mouth or nose in this sort of time. And did see any mention of face masks being uh, used during the plague either. No. And I just as you mentioned, some of the uh, similarities, a lot of the same issues we saw in ancient Rome, we are seeing today, like you said, the urban poor, that's still a huge factor. People from poorer backgrounds not being able to, I think there's even things that people from poorer backgrounds are more likely to die from modern COVID-19. And that would have been the same case here. And in some ways, of course, any death is sad, no matter who's dying or how it's happening. But it, it's alarming and it's somewhat sad that these issues from almost 2,000 years ago are still about
2: to this day in the midst of a pandemic now. Undoubtedly, there are some things that never change. Now, what I find that's really interesting about this pandemic in terms of what we actually know about it from more authoritative sources, I understand it. From what I understand, a lot of the documentation from this plague actually comes from the aforementioned physician Galen. Yeah, this guy is interesting because one of the things that he's best known for outside of this is being a physician for the gladiators. He was largely what we would call Mm. today a physiatrist. He focuses a lot on musculature. And in this case, I believe he was in Greece when it broke out and he was called to Rome because he was an imperial doctor, right? And he was called to Rome shortly after this thing broke out to try and get a handle of it. And his initial stay wasn't that long, and he took off. And the reason he claimed he took off was with political issues having to do with other doctors he was dealing with at the time. But within a couple of years, he's called back again. And a lot of the documentation that we know about this plague, and of course, because he's a second century physiatrist, that's only going to take you so far. But he is by far one of the most notable physicians from this period of time. And when you look into his writings about it, once again, he had a very general idea of what was going on, but naturally because it would be the better part of 2,000 years before we really get up to speed on a lot of the important elements of what's really happening to us, when he starts getting into the specifics, it starts to run off the rails. But he understood things like the importance of, for example, nutrients, generally speaking, He would also get into things that are around the mark without hitting it, like, for example, talking about how disease can be caused by the rapid change between hot weather and cold weather. I've heard it said that when something like that happens, it can make the human body more susceptible. He did not see it as something that opened us up to the possibility of contracting something. He actually outwardly, explicitly made it, a cause that created it. So he has some general things down and right, but he's just missing the target because naturally there's an entire field of scientific medicine that he's missing from the picture. So Galen is a very interesting record where he gets some of the general things right, some of the other things, he's just kind of circling the target, but it's basically Mm. the best we got.
0: Yeah, it's very impressive for how far back in time this was to be so... To be so on the nose in the grand scheme of things, yeah. To be sort of semi-accurate, but and once again, it's the doctors we are most most important for there. Once again, it's a doctor who had the best understanding of the pandemic, not a politician or any source like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That and think about how far we we are away from even the conception of a vaccination.
0: Yes. Yeah. Like yeah, vaccine wasn't going to be happening. It's something else, which I guess last time I wanted to mention is how the rate of its spread and I guess this is kind of an advantage Rome had obviously travel wasn't as quick and easy as it is now and if the theory is correct that the plague that hit Rome is the one that the same one that hit East Asia years before you know it took years and years for it to reach Europe from Asia and how quickly did our current pandemic go from Asia to Europe Few months at that, uh, it shows just that's just
2: when we recognized it,
0: yeah. How quickly, how how interconnected our HD world is, as we always like to say. And COVID 19 was a prime example of just how much humans spread and move around our planet in the most, I guess, morbid way possible. We saw just how much we travel and explore our world,
2: yeah. And something another theme that you and I have hit on from time to time is how the ancient world, especially what we would consider to be the old world, a.k.a. not America, not Australia, you know, things yeah. like that, it was also far more interconnected than our imaginations lead us to conclude. And in our next segment, albeit on a very different subject, we'll see a bit more about how that happens. But ultimately, these major empires, they were all trading with each other and interacting with each other. And one of the prime spreaders of this whole thing undoubtedly was merchants that would have gone long distances, relatively speaking in the the ancient world, bringing the word of this scourge to to new towns and new provinces, while at the same time also spreading it as well.
0: It it took a bit longer, but it could still spread. And as you said, Paul, our next segment is all about interconnecting between empires and perhaps the two greatest or at least the two empires we've talked about most during our time in 80 history. We're finally going to look into the relationship between the two of them in your segment, Paul.
2: Yes, indeed. But before we do that, we're going to get into our special middle segment where we read out your responses to our question about what you believe future historians will take the most interest in about our recently and thankfully past (laughs) 2020. But before all that, here's a word from Anna Domini.
1: This is the AD History Podcast.
2: So now we
0: have a very exciting middle segment to share with you, the famous AD History middle segment. And of course, as you guys know, we ask you all to give us your summary, uh, your opinion on how... The year 2020 will be remembered. We did this with the 2010s as a whole uh, a few episodes back now. Almost a year ago now, we did it about the 2010s. This is just about the single year of 2020 because as we mentioned, it was pretty much a decade unto itself.
2: And our first email comes from Ian from Denmark. And Paul, would you like to read this out? Ian writes to us in response to the question of what future historians will be most interested in about 2020 quote, I believe that 2020 will be remembered as the natural end to the major events that have characterized the latter half of the 2010s in the UK and in the United States. Both countries have tried to distance themselves from their traditional allies. The UK has now officially left the EU and closed that chapter in European history. The US has elected a new president that is more bivalent towards, for example, the UN and the EU. When speaking of the U.S. and 2020, I think that we in the future will look back at 2020 as the year where the rift between the two political parties and its people is greatest as it has been since the American Civil War. Close quote. And we move on to our next response. Patrick, how about you take this one?
0: This is from Martin Falk and this is from YouTube. And he said, I think it will be remembered as the year that we avoided disaster even without the pandemic. Look at events like Britain finally reaching a Brexit deal with the EU, Trump losing and subsequently contesting the US election to Joe Biden, the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent re-rise of Black Lives Matter movement, the murder of Kwasim Soleimani by the Trump administration, which potentially could have caused World War III, and even the Australian bushfires. Any of those could have been disastrous on their own. And then when you factor in the pandemic on top, all of that with all the lockdowns, the politicization of the mask and the potential mental health crisis, it could have caused, and to some extent did. It was, objectively speaking, the worst year in living memory. And we got through it. And I really enjoyed this response, Martin. And Martin does often leave some really good comments uh, on about 80 history through uh, the YouTube channel. And just to hear sort of encapsulizing it, it's, it's a real glass half full approach. You looking at the positives like, yeah, this awful stuff did happen. But because it happened, we are now thinking about it and we're changing it. And I think that's a lot of history. Things happen. We reflect on why that happened. And we try to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I think Martin's really taking that approach with 2020. And our next message comes from Alex from Grand Rapids. And Paul, you've got, you got the stage.
2: Yeah, so the Alex writes to us, quote, I guess it depends on what becomes the winning narrative for the future. I like to think that the mass hysteria concerning the media slash social media slash Trump, et cetera, would be something future historians would be interested in. Though if that hysteria becomes the dominant narrative, then it wouldn't be of interest in an objective, analytical way, close quote.
0: And finally, we have from Twitter, and of course, you guys can follow us uh, uh, on Twitter at ADHistoryPodcast. There'll be a link to that down below. I'm sure. This is from at darkness random on Twitter, and they said 2020 is weird because of COVID. It's the first time the entire world is going through the same thing. Even the world wars were relatively local, and this is so gosh darn true. Like we call them world wars, but <laughs> they're basically European wars, and some extra people were lending a hand. Obviously, that's a very Base way of interpreting the world wars
2: what i would say though here in, in terms of the first world war mm. the, the great war that was mostly a european conflict right that's where most of the yeah. fighting happened there's stuff that happened early on in east asia there, there's a whole middle eastern component to the first world war but for the most part the main battlefields are on, on western and western and eastern europe The Second World War is obviously very different because, and a lot of people have made this argument that World War II didn't even start in Europe, and it didn't even start in 1939. It started in 1937 when, after the Marco Polo Bridge incident, which is largely believed to be a false flag operation by the Japanese, as what would be described as at best a razor-thin case as Belli to invade mainland China from what was then Manchu Quo and what we know today as Manchuria. And there are a lot of theaters outside of Europe, to be sure, in the Second World War. Like I said, the whole China aspect, they lose between 10 and 15 million people due to the Japanese invasion. Can you even necessarily call the Soviet Union truly Europe? I really think of it more as Eurasia, to be sure. Mm. Obviously, there was considerable fighting in Southeast Asia, as well as in the easternmost portions of what we know today is India and Myanmar, which we would have called Burma at the time. You have North Africa. You have Europe. You have the North Atlantic. You have what's happening in the Pacific. But at the same time, and it also encompasses a place like Australia, which was an incredibly important part of it, and Indonesia, Malaysia. All of these places are involved in that conflict. But there are places that are totally untouched by it as well, because even though the powers are involved in the conflict, the Americas, for the most part, don't really experience any sort of damage or fighting on on their home turf to be sure when you get into the southern most portions of Africa, they don't see any combat. you know you see say like in Ethiopia obviously there was fighting going on there, Egypt, Tunisia, all, all these places that there's going fighting on but it's it's not global in the same way the pandemic is today where it literally has touched every part of it. I would only say though, this is interesting because even though it was relatively local, the death toll in all likelihood will be far higher by comparison. Uh, you know, they believe today the mark is mm. about 60 million people died during the Second World War. That includes combatants and non-combatants. Whereas today, I believe what the total just recently passed two million for COVID nineteen. I believe so. Yes. At, at the time of recording here, so. Relatively. And that and that's the, the operative word that I saw in there. Relatively speaking, relatively local. Yeah, that's true in terms of where combat is actually happening. But it did eventually sink in most of the world, but not in this way and not on such a personal level. Yeah. And as far as I know, and this is actually very disturbing. I think I was reading this through the BBC World Service. Civilian deaths in Britain right now have an attrition rate that is highest since the Battle of Britain and the Blitz during World War 2
0: I'm pretty sure, and I might be wrong on this, I think it's something I checked, I think more British citizens, people in the UK, have died from COVID-19 than British civilians died in World War Two. So it's, it's a it's, hard... Uh, there's so many other factors of that, of course. There's populations are different, you know. There's simply more people in the UK now than there was last time, but it's still a pretty
2: harrowing fact. I think Britain lost something like 350,000 people during the Second World War and as far as just civilian casualties go. Yes, yeah, I believe the civilian casualties in the Blitz itself was somewhere between 50 and 60,000, which most certainly has been exceeded at this point. Yes, it has. It has. Well, this was very interesting and we always love hearing your thoughts guys and a year from now let's let's do it again. We'll see you there. We'll bring the cocktails. And we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini.
1: This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. As well as, of course, TGNreview.com/slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick.
0: Now, Paul, uh, perhaps the two uh, empires or regions or countries or whatever you want to call them, who we have covered most so far in AD History in these first 170 years, Has undoubtedly been the Roman Empire and the Han Dynasty over in China. But how much did these two empires actually know about each other, Paul? That's the question you've been asking yourself this time around.
2: Indeed, it is so. And it's an interesting question at that. So I think it is best to set the scene. It is between 161 AD and 166 AD, Han Dynasty China, and an envoy arrives from a distant empire, a distant empire that you know sits on the polar opposite side of the world and is the closest to the power that you enjoy on your side of the world and they claim to be an envoy of this power. Are they a true envoy? Are they just merchants acting as envoys? Is it totally fraudulent claim by these merchants? We don't know. But it is the first time in the Han Chinese records when such an envoy arrives. And the fact of the matter is, while you are aware of these people, your information about this distant empire far to your west is scattered and incomplete, and the attempts that you have made to contact it over the last century have not been entirely successful, so your knowledge remains incomplete. And in many ways, this also very much describes the Roman side of the equation as well. They know there's a major power far to their east, but they don't know that much about them. Even though they most certainly know that they exist and that they themselves are a force to be reckoned with in their own right. And so, yeah, Patrick... We have talked so much about Rome and the Han Dynasty, and so it really begs the question, what was their relationship, and what did they know about each other? And this is really where we have to start, which is, what did they know about each other? And the short answer is, Patrick, bits and bobs. Bits and bobs, (laughs) Bits and bobs.
0: Yes, that's a very British term, bits and bobs.
2: (laughs) Yes, So much of the knowledge that these two sides have accumulated about each other have been through traders that are operating through various portions of the Silk Road, and their knowledge politically at this point in time in the 160s AD is very limited. So each power relative to the other are on the opposite sides of the known world, where if you were to make a concerted effort, it would take between six months and two years to make a one-way trip. Part of that has to do with how you're traveling. Like, for example, traveling by foot is one thing, but part of Silk Road routes are, in fact, sea lanes as well, through what we call the Indian Ocean, the Arabian Ocean, Red Sea, those kind of places that very much are also part of it, because we think about them as caravans over these long steps in, like, for example, Central Asia. But the reality is, like today, the fastest and most efficient way to ship goods is via the sea. It's amazing. It, It really works well. But of course, then you're not dealing with the power of steam, or nuclear, or whatever, you're very much dependent upon rudimentary forms of sailing, and it all boils down to favorable winds. It's not like traveling in the North Atlantic, where you have the the so-called trade winds, where you can make a trip pretty consistently, and you can be relatively sure that the wind will be with you along the way. Yet, while they were very much aware of each other's existence, and the other reason for that And this kind of falls into the Silk Road category. The other reason they're aware of each other has to do with the goods that the others are producing. Let me give you a great example of this. In Rome and in the greater Roman Empire, Chinese silk is very highly sought after. And the Chinese couldn't be any more happy about this because how they produced silk was an aggressively protected trade secret. So... That That's just how much money it would bring in. And in the case of Han Dynasty China, they adored Roman glassware that was made in Alexandria. That's pretty incredible stuff. But for the most part, on a fundamental level, they each understood a large and powerful empire sat on the opposite side of the world respective to their side of the world. And they were fundamentally curious about each other. That That much is certain. And for the most part, despite the tremendous distance, they did have that de facto relationship due to trade. So, when it comes to trade in this era of the ancient world, one cannot underestimate or understate the length of its practical reach. For example, Roman coinage through archaeological digs has actually been uncovered as far east as Japan. How about that, Patrick? Roman coinage found in japan
0: that's mad like saying like talk about rome and china knowing about each other rome and japan would have known about each other that's crazy that's over that has to be over some sort of sea that's not just people walking that has gone over the ocean we definitely know that and that's incredible that's so
2: so far away here's another thing this is something we've actually covered before but it's entirely relevant here which is on top of that the policies of both powers, especially when it comes to trade, has had an impact on another. Let's go all the way back to episode two, and we're talking about Wang Mang, and at that point, part of his policy was the mm. hoarding of gold, and he was trying to replace it with rubbish bronze coins, and nobody was having it. Because of the, the Shin dynasty, which took over most of Han dynasty holdings, we'll get back to that in a moment, because of that, Augustus knew that the gold was starting to begin slowly being siphoned away from the Roman Empire and from Roman coffers, and so as an act of protectionism, he forbade trading with gold coins to any sort of foreign entity, entirely because Wang Meng, in his short-lived and ill-fated Qin dynasty, decided that he wanted to start hoarding it. That is an incredible thing that Despite the distance and that point in time, the policies, especially regarding trade, though it was a delayed response, was most definitely a very real and and highly impactful one. It's incredible that that is happening 2,000 years ago. We can see the relationship here. I mean, this is incredible stuff.
0: Yeah, it really sounds like uh, like the butterfly effect, where something happening all the way over in China <laughs> is having an effect on the Roman Empire. So I it's it. just a really sort of good example of like something over there. Obviously, it's much bigger than a butterfly flapping its wings, but it just shows how much how connected this world was at this time that China could do something which would affect Rome, but them even directly, it's not like they directly attacked Rome. It's just something they were doing cause consequences for the people in Rome.
2: And so in these Chinese sources, and there's a number of them that crop up over the years and, and even after where we are at this point in this episode, and they begin referring to Rome as Da Chin, which translates either to Great China or Other China. And without a doubt, it's it's hardly a incredible leap of extrapolation to understand exactly the way Han China and Han Chinese decision makers are thinking about Rome, which is a power that is equivalent to their own, to the point where, oh yeah, that that's the other China, the one that's on the other side of the world, yeah, right? Yeah,
0: that, that's really interesting. Like, that's video-worthy. Thanks for letting me know that, Paul. <laughs> oh, oh,
2: you got it, my friend. Any, anytime. And yeah. the Romans actually knew Han Dynasty China by the name Serica. Which is possibly a progenitor of the modern English term China, but may have actually been inaccurately referring to a different people that were located in Central Asia near the the Tarim Basin. We'll get to the Tarim Basin in a bit. But while China viewed Rome as their mirror equivalent, Rome didn't necessarily view them any better than they did any other non-Roman peoples or peoples that were in the Roman Empire. This is not a shock. We we, we kind of get how the Romans tend to, to operate. But yeah. apparently even some Chinese administrators, even as late as the third century, referred to Rome as, quote, the treasure country due to the many additional wares in addition to the glass finery that were available in Rome. And as I mentioned before, that Roman-made glassware in Alexandria to own such a thing in Han Dynasty China was considered a status symbol. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: can see that. I'd I'll, I'll, I'll still be pretty impressed if someone owned something from Alexandria today. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Without
2: a doubt. <laughs> and so the initial accounts of Rome were acquired by the Han Dynasty in the late first century. This is documented in the Book of Later Han, when General Ban Cho was reclaiming the Tarim Basin. Now, Tarim Basin is important here because we're also talking about the Silk Road. If you guys look at a map of Han Dynasty China at this time, you'll notice that their territorial claims when you start moving west into Central Asia has this kind of hook arm to the north and west of their territories, which is known as the Tarim Basin. It also generally corresponds with established caravan routes for the Silk Road. And that's precisely the biggest reason that they want to control it, is because of the economic activity that happens through that corridor of theirs. And so before Wang Meng took over in the Xin Dynasty, they controlled the Tarim Basin. They lost it during the Xin Dynasty, and then they spent several decades at least planning and then executing the reconquest of it. And it's during the reconquest of the Tarim Basin by Ban Chao that we begin seeing the first information being acquired by the Han Dynasty about Rome. And in this case at the time, this is in the in the ninth decade of the first century, so the 90s AD, basically what happened was he started getting reports that indicated, since they'd last been there, the rise of a very large, very powerful empire that had come onto the scene in the interim. And as we know, based on when the Roman Empire, not the Roman Republic, but the empire was established, Rome came onto the scene in a very significant way, to an extent that even a power as great and as distant as the Han Dynasty, when they got knowledge of it, would be immediately curious about and begin calculating the possibilities that exist with the existence of this new power on the scene from their perspective. And so Mm. it piqued their interest. The initial information that was given to Ban Chao about the Romans were that they wore their hair cropped, they wore embroidered clothing, they were tall and honest, they resembled the people of the Middle Kingdom, which is the translation of China, that's what you call China, the Middle Kingdom, you get the idea, and it's basically the reason, some have speculated, why Rome had also acquired the name Da Chin, because they thought that they roughly resembled their own people. And the later Book of Han also mentions the information in China obtained about the Roman government upon reclaiming the Tarim Basin, that they were honest in business, possess a large supply of grain and foodstuffs have an abundant supply of natural resources, and they have the existence of a highly effective Roman postal system that we today would know as the Circus Publicus, which, you have to think, in the ancient world, having a really effective and timely postal system is quite the accomplishment.
0: Yeah, something I still feel like I need sometimes when I'm waiting for uh, parcels. From certain people who won't get mentioned.
2: Yes, yes, naturally. So (laughs) for all the issues that we have today, the fact that they're pulling this off in the ancient world is really quite extraordinary. And the other thing that they noticed as far as foreign contact and diplomacy is that it was welcomed heartily. Their words. They were told that the foreign envoys would be given gold and escorted to their destination. Huh. Sounds good. I mean, we know now how accurate some of this information was. And obviously, like I said, they're working off of bits and bobs. It's it's an interesting little kernel of information that, that came Ban Chao's way. But he eventually acted upon it. But as far as all this is concerned, we'll get to his acting upon it in the moment, it also begs the question, now that we've mentioned all the things they they, they know about each other without actual direct contact, what was the relationship between Rome and China. For the sake of this relationship, it's important to establish that any such relationship had a somewhat limited window of existence in the ancient world, given communication lines, things of that nature. So, you know, what is a couple hundred years is not really that long, because obviously you're going to have waves of interest and less interest, and obviously the... Western Han Dynasty fell thanks to Wang Mang. then it came back not too long after with the Eastern Han Dynasty, and of course then you have the period of the Three Kingdoms and the Jin Dynasty, which does actually learn quite a bit more, but not so much relative to this. And even the Roman Empire itself, we're only talking about from the end of the 1st century BC until about the 4th century at least in terms of the western roman empire they have contact with the byzantines to an extent but we'll get to that at another time as you can see there was a somewhat spotty and erratic window for any potential formal relationship that might have been possible and a lot of that time there are also issues where those powers were also much more inwardly interested because they had a lot more going on at home that commanded their immediate attention hmm. so in this case Given their significant distance from each other, at no time did any of their provinces, protectorates, or client kingdoms ever share a border with each other, which is very important. And the Parthians and the Cushions were effectively the buffer states that sat between the two. For what we would today recognize as a normalized formal diplomatic relationship, which in some respect is far, far more modern than most people realize and assume this was never the case between Rome and Han Dynasty China. There were no fixed diplomatic missions of either embassies or consulates that were present in either of the political capitals of either power during their coexistence. In fact, according to Chinese sources, the first such group that I mentioned at the beginning only occurs between 161 and 166, and historians aren't even sure that this was legit. especially because there are no Roman records that are corroborating such an envoy. And it's possible that they could have been using traitors as de facto missions and and envoys because they knew where they were going. But since we have no ability to corroborate it from the Roman side, the chances are it could have been just outright fraudulent. And when you stop and think about it, there are a lot of benefits to being a traitor that claims to be the official envoy on a mission to contact you and from from a great power think about the preferential treatment and opportunities that that could create in doing so i mean the possibilities are endless are they not no definitely not no um it's quite an impressive thing to do i'm a little surprised it didn't happen more often no yeah and who's to say it didn't but we haven't found that
0: yeah i have the evidence
2: what is clear of course like i said is if there was ever a formal diplomatic envoy commissioned by Rome at any time. And that is a, an issue entirely, but once again, we just can't substantiate it. Now, that being said, Han Dynasty China did make an initial attempt to make formal contact with Rome, and it's an interesting story. Once Han Dynasty China found out about Rome's existence through Chao reclaiming the Tarim Peninsula he came to the conclusion that potentially a greater relationship with Rome could have tremendous strategic benefits. However, it was a matter of learning more about Rome and, interestingly enough, being able to even find them.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess it would have been as easy to find people when the maps weren't really finished yet.
2: <laughs> Not a chance. So this aforementioned Ban Chao in 97 AD sent a subordinate of his by the name of Gan Ying from their location on the Tarim Basin, to try and find and contact Rome, perhaps even with the aspiration of making a formal political contact, leading to direct formal relations between Roman and Han China. He thought that there was a possibility, of course, of creating greater economic ties, as well as perhaps finding a capable and willing partner to help them manage, in cooperation, Central Asia. Fascinating stuff fashioning mm. stuff, he sends Gan Ying from the Tarim Basin to try and find the Roman Empire. And eventually, he reaches what we call basically modern-day Kuwait at the shores of that northernmost portion of the Persian Gulf, which then would have been part of the Parthian Empire, or the Persians, if you will. And based on his extremely incomplete knowledge of the geography in question— From there, he thought he needed to sail to Rome, (laughs) and he met a ton of troubles trying to arrange passage. It was expensive. The mariners he spoke to were not entirely clear exactly where he wanted to go, because there were language issues, of course. And the voyage that they did offer him, I think, may have only been as far as Roman Egypt. And because of that, the trip was highly expensive, because any such voyage at the time, because once again, as we were talking about earlier, favorable winds that you had to pay and make provisions for up to a three year voyage. You have to plan
0: for the worst case scenario, basically.
2: Exactly. And that was a tremendous dent to the coin purse, as it were. But because Gunning was apparently unfamiliar with what was sitting to his then North and West, Parthia And Rome actually shared a common border from where he was that was only a 40-day trip by land. So close. So close. And yet so far. far. And it was at that point in time that he chose (laughs) to return. He gave up. And upon his return, based on the incomplete understanding possessed by him... Ban Chao concluded that Rome was too distant to be a partner in managing Central Asia or to come to any sort of meaningful formal contact and having a diplomatic relationship.
0: I just like, well say imagine being in Ban Chao's shoes. At that time imagine being like from just imagine the concept of like being from China, just a Chinese person in ancient Rome. It sounds it sounds almost like a sort of fantasy novel. Like just seeing these two people from so different world seeing someone from one different world in such a different environment it sounds almost yeah i I can't quite put my head around it imagine how different the world must have looked like to him just something i thought was worth noting imagine just being in such a different part of the world just being overwhelmed by what you were seeing
2: there actually is a third century chinese source that does document a trip successfully To Rome. Mm. I haven't included it here because it's still far off, but we'll end up coming back around to it. And it's interesting because in some ways it's kind of vague, specifically in terms of him describing geography that he's clearly unfamiliar with, like how he refers to the Nile or how he refers to the Red Sea or the Mediterranean. And so it takes a lot of scholarly insight, not simply to translate his writings, but to contextualize them, to figure out exactly where the heck he's talking about. And he mentions his observations when in Rome itself. And some of it is accurate, just in a kind of a general sense about how people lived. But there are some things that are way, way off in terms of his description of how Rome is governed. Like he's still describing the consul system and how they don't they want to avoid having a king or or an emperor, which we know is just not true remotely at that <sighs> point in time. The imperial mechanism, the emperor had been in high gear by the time of the third century. So what we get closer to that time, we'll do it. But it wasn't the most relevant thing that we came to here. Mm-hmm. And as far as Rome's diplomatic outlook on Han China, Rome's general outlook and ambitions were quite different. Different. That's different than how they viewed them on an inherent level. As far as Rome's awareness of China, it had everything to do with its economic capacity to generally influence Rome and Roman consumer habits. And Rome's overall disposition to view China was as a competitor and possibly a hostile competitor, which is interesting. From an economic standpoint, they were somewhat competing for the same, albeit remote, Central Asian consumers as well as Roman domestic markets. then You had kind of an interesting morality at play here, which was that Rome, one, through Stoicism, very much discouraged acquiring these highfalutin items that didn't stop Romans from doing it, obviously. And Stoicism is all well and nice, but certainly the the Roman aristocracy, to use a term that is... Mostly accurate, though I don't think the Romans would ever have ever wanted to necessarily describe it that way, ever halted them from doing any of that. But on mm. top of that, Rome was also very protective of its economy. Like I said, remember back with Augustus and the trading of gold when Wang Mong was hoarding it, and they didn't like running trade imbalances. Not a big fan of running trade imbalances. So it's kind of interesting in that respect. And even though in reality, There could have been many a great possibility, but they were still a remote competitor and possibly a hostile one. So basically, anytime you're looking at a great power, and this is also true in the ancient world, we think about Roman power today as a matter of military might as a matter of technology, as a matter of its governmental administration and culture. But just like today, and this was no different in the Roman world, their economic power was absolutely paramount in their eyes. And it added so much to what aligning yourself with the Roman Empire could be in terms of the benefits of doing so. So naturally, they're not all that interested in having another great possibly in their eyes, equal to them competitors sitting on the other side of the world competing for the same markets. That's kind of where they were coming from. So in all of this, there's one great part of the equation that I don't necessarily think that most people would consider. And that, of course, is the Parthians' position regarding any formal diplomatic relationship between Rome and Han Dynasty China. It's an interesting possibility in terms of what we could imagine what might have been possible had there been cooperation. Like, for example, Patrick, say that they did make formal contact and both sides reasoned that strategic cooperation in a number of areas were possible, but especially when it comes to economics, right? And the other thing to consider here... Though this is ground rules or alert, this is wild speculation and counterfactual, Mm. but it's a worthy conversation for you and I to have here. Imagine both sides believe that they can have a mutually beneficial relationship in terms of managing interests in Central Asia. How does that change the strategic calculation for Rome in regards to moving further east? Now, Grant, you grant you, in this case, they're still very distant from each other. You still have the Parthian Empire. You still have the Cushions. You still have various parts of Central Asia that don't necessarily fall into you know any of these spheres. However, if you believe that there is another great power sitting on the other side, that changes things, especially a cooperative one, one that you're working with in concert. The concept of moving more expeditiously eastward even though the Romans at this point had done it and very much failed at it prior, changes significantly when you think that there's somebody that's friendly and working towards similar prior agreed upon ends potentially on the other side. How does that change things? I mean, would you imagine that somewhat changes the calculation and ambitions for Rome?
0: Yeah, definitely. Like, they could have partnered up and uh, established uh, some sort of contact with China you got to wonder how like people like the parthians would feel do you think they would feel penned in oh god like both our neighbors are on the same page now because i think for, for for some time in history the parthians and the cushions as we mentioned earlier in the podcast were, were uh middlemen of sorts proverbial middlemen and they kind of benefited from their location like because china and rome w- were so often like going between the silk road and they were slapping in the middle of the silk road they thought hey this is good but maybe if if china and rome had partnered up they might be like uh oh they're on the same page now they, they they there's more of them than there are of us and if we anger one of them we'll most likely anger the other one and yeah part of me thinks they probably would have been a bit more paranoid of being so blockaded i guess blocked by this larger power
2: there's an element of this which is interesting mm. So naturally, we've talked about how the Cushions most certainly would have generated a great deal of wealth by the fact that so many established Silk Route caravan routes go through their territory, and there are many different opportunities to make money off of that activity. Parthia enjoyed the same thing. Mm. Now, the military side of this is far more nebulous because we're still dealing with very long distances here, and Rome and Han China are still very far apart. And while it's possible that it could have changed calculations for their extending their power further, if you're the Parthian Empire, you're not I don't necessarily know that you're as worried militarily per se, though you can't discount that you have you can have both sides of your equation working in concert, which is just not a good thing. But from an economic standpoint, if they make contact, there is potential that any sort of agreement can potentially cut out the middlemen.
0: Yeah, literally, yeah, cutting out the middleman, like, we don't have to worry about them. We've got our own thing going on. Rome and China could be like, we've got our own thing going on. We don't need to deal with you anymore. Like We figured this out between the two of us. Definitely.
2: And while it's only speculation about how that could have happened, if you are the Parthians in particular, and I couldn't find more information about this regarding the Cushions position on the matter, but if you're the Parthians, that is the absolute one thing that you want to avoid at all costs, all costs.
0: Your empire is basically founded on being the middleman. If you can't be the middleman, then what are you?
2: Exactly. They are, for Europeans and and some Eurasians, Northern Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, they're the gateway to the East. And the East Mm. at that time, and for a long time after, guys, was the big word associated with huge potential riches that going to the East, working in the East, finding good fortune in the East can lead you to an incredible windfall of wealth. And the Persians before this, the Parthians now, and for the most part, until, you know, for centuries after, most certainly benefited from their extremely fortuitous geography. And they were going to do everything possible to make sure China and Rome didn't have that contact. And so they did what they could to discourage it. From what I understand, some of it even has to do with misinformation. And it's also been speculated that when Gan Ying made his trip when he was sent by Ban Chao from the Tarim Basin to try to make direct contact with Rome, that the Parthians may have also been whispering into his ear that if you keep going, you'll never come home.
0: Yeah. It- it is so interesting. Like I'm surprised there's not more about this. I'd love to read like fiction based on the Parthians, making sure Rome and China don't meet up. Like it could almost sound a bit like a slapstick comedy of sorts. Like how do we make sure these two people don't meet up? That sort of thing. It's really, really fascinating sort of side of history. You know, we talk so much about Rome and China. Like what's going on between? And like how much, what a huge consequence it would have been to these smaller empires if they had met up. And just absolutely fascinating stuff, Paul.
2: It really is. So let's break this down here a moment. So most of this relationship is happening at a distance. It's happening Mm. through the Silk Road. And something I think is important to point out about the Silk Road, because I think it can get kind of lost even though it makes eminent sense, is that when it comes to the Silk Road... Not that there weren't exceptions, but for the most part, it was just goods just kind of like snaking along. So they start in one point, they move along, they trade, it continues on from that point, goods get traded, and they pick up at another point with a different set of traders. And so it's just kind of like like snaking along through the human intestines, as it were, where one picks up the baton and then hands it off to another group, that same baton. And so information disseminates through their culture, religion, trade, money, you name it. The Silk Road wasn't just a matter of goods, it exchanged everything, including very important information and culture and religions that changed forever the places that they were trading with at the time. We've talked about this before, especially like Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Buddhism very likely found its way into Western China and then eventually to the Han court through the Silk Road. And plagues as we mentioned earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it all it all comes along. It's all communicative. And it's slower, but it's definitely a very interconnected world from that perspective. So while they didn't have any formal diplomatic relationship, while there was no strategic cooperation, the two's existence was that they were aware of it both sides and They certainly did affect each other, but they were too far away to have a a truly meaningful relationship. We don't get really good documented accounts of any kind until, as far as I know, from the Chinese side, even though, as I mentioned, there are some potholes in it that I've found until at least the third century. And of course, you have this very bizarre case here between 161 and 166 with an envoy claiming to have been sent by either Antoninus Pius or Marcus Aurelius. But we can't even verify that that was legit because we can't corroborate it with the Roman sources at the time. So they were aware of each other. They most certainly affected each other. It would have been something else. It would have been quite amazing if they did somehow create a formal diplomatic relationship, though it's hard to imagine how that would have operated because unlike today or even like the age of sail where things are getting around the earth much quicker in terms of messaging, when you're talking about a trip that could potentially take years, how meaningful a relationship can you have when the the political sands are always shifting at any given time? It's kind of hard to envisage. And on top of that, and I mentioned this earlier, and this is kind of an important conversation here, Patrick, especially when we're getting into diplomatic relationships Mm -hmm. and, and how they've evolved over the years. At what point in time when you stop and think, Patrick, if you had to guess that the idea of two leaders of great powers meeting together began in a serious kind of formalized way where it's become the diplomatic norm, when would you guess that started? I
0: don't know really. Um, I guess when travel became a bit more accessible, um, I imagine great leaders would have been in contact, like maybe through letter writing, that sort of thing. But I'll go with like trains, maybe. I, I really have no idea. I've, I kind of you kind of assume it's always been built in, but perhaps it's a more recent thing.
2: Well, it's interesting. So in terms of diplomatic contact, obviously. Diplomatic contact is happening right now in general relative to more local powers for each of these mm. guys, Not necessarily, obviously not each other. But for the longest time, there was always this really big issue about the head honchos actually meeting up face to face because who goes to who? And for the longest time, this is certainly true in Europe, it could be viewed that one traveling to the other was one side supplicating, basically diplomatic genuflecting that you are the greater power, so I will go to you. And this bears out over a great, great deal in time. Now, it's not in any way unusual to send like a top ambassador, some sort of diplomatic plenipotentiary that is acting on behalf of another ruler that's sent to another country's political center where their ruler exists. That's been happening for a while. It still happens. It's happening right now in this point of history. But the idea of meeting face-to-face was always problematic. As far as I know, the first really big meeting where this sort of thing actually happened is between Napoleon and Alexander at Tilsit, which is, of course, in the early 19th Mm. century. And what they did was, on the river Tilsit, they actually built a barge platform thing. So that way, there could be no symbolic imaging That one is going to, they're meeting each other in a perfectly neutral spot where they're not making any more of an effort or a distance to meet the other. And that obviously concluded in the Treaty of Tilsit, which, you know, all went to hell with the 1812 invasion of Russia by Napoleon. That's a different story. But in terms of the modern, I go to you, we have this kind of symmetry thing. And this is very Mm. much a theory of Professor David Reynolds, who is an international diplomatic history scholar for the 20th century. Specifically, he teaches at Christ College, Cambridge. And he's basically, if not the guy, like the top three guys that discuss this sort of thing. And he focuses on the World Wars and the Cold War in this regard. And he said the modern conception of symmetry, where we have leaders meeting together and things like that, was actually by pure necessity created by Neville Chamberlain. Mm -hmm. Neville Chamberlain in the the meetings that he had that lead with hitler to solve the munich crisis and just as a quick aside that included four meetings it wasn't just the signing of the treaty at munich it had three preceding ones and it was a big deal at the time because for the most part there wasn't a heck of a lot of precedence for it like i said we're looking Mm. back at Tilsit, and then of course naturally you have the treaty of versailles but that's a little bit different So all of this, what we think of diplomacy today in terms of world leaders meeting each other, this is all very, very recent. And you go back into antiquity with Rome and Han China, not only are they not able to really have a diplomatic relationship, but it's extremely hard to even get emissaries out there. And even if they had done it, what would have come of it? The possibilities are quite endless. But what we can say to you guys is they knew about each other, they learned more about each other over time, but they were never able to have that direct diplomatic contact where you have normalized diplomatic relationships with embassies or consulates or any of that fun stuff. But they undoubtedly had a direct effect upon each other that was profound. Undoubtedly, even though it wasn't direct, they both in concert, though not intentionally so, played a very dominant hand on the known world, the old world, at the time that we are discussing now. Undoubtedly. And who knows what could have happened
0: if Rome and China did somehow reach some sort of formal diplomatic uh, contact with one another. Like they could have turned on each other. Rome could have somehow overtaken the Chinese dynasty and expanded the Roman Empire way more out east. But that's just wild <laughs> oh, speculation. Yeah, on my that, end. That,
2: that's definitely wild speculation. But it is interesting because if you look at the Roman mindset, is Mm -hmm. the Roman mindset for most Romans was that the Roman Empire was destined to control all the peoples of the known world at some point. And while it's very hard to imagine the Roman Empire even going as far as Alexander did, it is interesting to think the possibilities that might have existed should any cooperation on a formal level have existed between Han Dynasty China and Rome. And I can tell you what, whatever those possibilities may be, there was most certainly a very vested power in making sure that did not happen. And I love love this concept here and this discussion because it factors in so many of the things that I personally find are really interesting. And being able to look at them and realize, especially on a grand strategic basis, that the base calculations of interest and pursuing interest and protecting interest – and looking to encourage certain outcomes and discourage others, have fundamentally not changed in iota. Maybe how we do it, how we communicate it, how fast we can communicate it, and our abilities to achieve those ends have changed. But in terms of the base fundamental calculation, hasn't changed one bit.
0: Completely right, Paul. And thank you so much for sharing this with us. I'm so looking forward and seeing if any more develops of this relationship between uh, Rome and the Han dynasty, seeing where it goes, if more contact is made. As you mentioned, we do have about in the first century more information on this relationship of a Chinese envoy in Rome. And I'm just fascinating to dig in into that. And not only that, but how Rome handles other empires, how the world becomes more interconnected. And what you've done right here, Paul, is a a key part of the foundation of our world becoming more interconnected, as we love so much.
2: Well, thank you, thank you. (laughs) And with that, we'll be back right after a word from A.D.
1: This is the A.D. History Podcast.
2: Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on
0: Instagram at NameExplainYT, but you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT, and of course on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul?
2: In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at pkd and history as well as my reader submitted world war ii q a column the world war ii brain bucket where i answer all world war ii related questions which if you are on youtube we will have a link down in the description that's all today for myself goodbye thank
0: you and take care
2: yes thank you all so much until next time
1: like all good things we come to an end for today thank you for listening to the ad history podcast it is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at adhistorypc, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at AD History Podcast at TGNreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreviewcom AD History Podcast. For Paul and Patrick. Thank you for listening to the A.D. History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.